The scripture is full of stories. It doesn't matter where you turn in the Bible, you can find stories, and we can learn lessons from them, can't we? Genesis chapter 5 is one of those passages in the Bible that has quite a lot of stories packed into just a small space. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness. After his image, and named him Seth. After he begat Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Seth lived and 105 years and begat Enos. After he begat Enos, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And so on it goes on. So all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. And the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. And Mahaliel, and he died. The stories are short. They're succinct. When I was young, I thought perhaps this was one of the most boring passages in all the Bible to read. Uh, we called them the begats, right? We had some begats in Sabbath school, and now we're having more begats. People are born, they grow up, they have children, and then tragically, they die. Tragically, yes. But as it would seem, inevitably, they die. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man for all his labor, in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. And so reads the story of every life, both man and beast. As one dies, so dies the other the rich and the poor, the righteous and the wicked, the wise and the foolish, all alike come to the same fate. I'm no, I am not the most avid reader in the world, but when I do read, I like to read a good biography. I enjoy the stories, the, the, the feats that men and women have accomplished in their lives. But there's just one thing I don't like about biographies. It's the ending you know, unless it's an autobiography, it seems like they all end the same way. You know what I mean? You get to know this person. It's like you enter into their lives and then at the end, they died. You know, if there was one thing I could change about life, just one thing and only one thing, it would be this. Nothing else, it would be this. If only I could remove its ending. If only I could change one thing about life, it would be to remove its ending. But in the words of the 14th century English poet, all good things must come to an end. Or to quote Benjamin Franklin, in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. The inevitability of death is unquestioned in our society. Just like this little string, so is your life. It has a beginning, and just as surely, it has an ending.
It doesn't matter how much salad we eat. It doesn't matter how much tofu we eat. It doesn't matter how much water you drink or how many miles you walk every single day. It doesn't matter if you follow, follow all eight natural remedies and, and, and drink, what is it called? Well, you can imagine what it's called. It does not matter. Sooner or later, we all go to the same place. If we are willing to admit the truth, we will realize that it will all come to us. Something within us, though, tells us this should not be. Families and friendships are torn apart. The relationships that are fostered over our lifetime, the experience and wisdom that is gained over our lifetime, the fortunes that are built, all are lost or left to others who do not appreciate the toil of our labors. Look at how our bodies are made. Really, there's no reason we should have to die. You know, the car that I drive, it wears out. Cell phones, they break. Houses, they get old. They need to be fixed. But look at our bodies. Look at the amazing design of our bodies. If I cut myself, it will heal. Muscles can grow stronger. Injured organs can rebuild. Every day, millions of cells in our body are regenerated and made replaced with new ones. But there's no reason for this kind of machinery to wear out, to get old. Imagine if you had a car in your driveway, and if you ever ran into something or bumped it or scraped it, the next morning it would fix itself. It'd be like brand new. I'd never have to buy a car again. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, compared to man-made machines, our bodies are incredible. They last a long time. You can go through quite a number of cars in your lifetime, right? At least I could, <laughs> as much as I drive. But we don't last forever. I, I want to ask you, friends, is it an inevitable law of the universe that all things must eventually die? To look at it, it would seem that way. Perhaps, but on another level, it seems so dissonant, so wrong. I want to ask you, friends, is it possible that we are, what we observe and what we experience, we're living in an incredible anomaly, a tumor, as it were, of death in a universe that was made to last forever? If we were to able to step back for just a moment, to look at a bigger picture of space and time, is it possible that we would see around us in this cycle of life, that this cycle of life and death that we experience here is really just sort of a blip, a tragic blip in a much larger universe that is quite different than what we see? In other words, is the rule of life and death the norm? Or is the norm something bigger? A rule of life where death is only an intruder. Friends, the Bible speaks a lot about this concept, this principle of life. It talks much about an afterlife. And it speaks many times of the idea of eternal or everlasting life. In the very beginning, the very first story in Genesis, Adam and Eve, right after the creation, they were warned not to touch the fruit of one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest what lest they should die. We know the story. They ate the fruit. 
and they were banned from the garden. They could no longer eat the fruit of that tree of life, that tree that was designed to make them, to help them to live forever. And since that time, every man, every woman, every child has come under the rule of death. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as though, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, in verse 18, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification and life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, friends, the Bible teaches a much different principle. Rather than teaching that all things good have come from the cycle of life and death, the Bible teaches that life comes from one source, the life giver. That we brought death upon ourselves by our own sin, by our own choice. But through the righteousness of one man, that is Jesus Christ, we can again come under the dominion, not of death, but of life. The Bible teaches that death is the result of sin. In the big scheme of the universe, death is not the ultimate end of all life. It's an unwelcome intruder. It came as a direct result of our rebellion against God. The incredible news of the gospel is that Jesus came to bridge the gap, to reunite fallen man to his creator. Jesus says in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Turn with me there. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus, speaking, speaking in the story of Lazarus, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never, never die. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Jesus says, whoever believes in me shall never die. In the last half of the book of Revelation, turn with me there to Revelation, and we'll be skimming through and reviewing some of what we've studied over the last few weeks. The last half of the book of Revelation pictures this epic battle played out between God and Satan, the God of life and the great enemy, the Ordinary the originator of death, the great dragon who opposes God and all that is good. In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we understand the origins of this great dragon, whom we call Satan. He, God didn't create a dragon. He didn't create a devil. He created a beautiful angel, Lucifer. Lucifer was the covering cherub next to God at the right hand of God in possession of highest honor in heaven. But pride and envy sprang up in his heart. He coveted the very position of God. By his very pride and by his very covetousness, he separated himself off from God. War broke out in heaven as we read in Revelation chapter 12, and Satan was cast out to the earth. Here, once he got... Once he came to this earth, he was confined to a single tree. 
But he duped God's creation. He duped Adam and Eve into joining his rebellion. And for the last 6,000 years, we have witnessed the terrible result of his government of death. But the narrative of Revelation continues beyond chapter 12. This dragon, in a rage, goes after God's people. This dragon especially goes after God's son, Jesus Christ. But after Jesus ascends to heaven, Satan goes after his church. And in Revelation chapter 13, we see that Satan develops a more sophisticated strategy. First, there's the dragon, Satan, and his empire, paganism. Then there's this leopard-like beast, sort of a conglomerate of all of the beasts of Daniel chapter 7. This leopard-like beast representing a church-state power who attempts to coerce the consciences of God. Then a third beast, as it were, coming up out of the, out of the land with lamb-like horns. Ostensibly represents a land of freedom, but one that would ultimately do the bidding of this leopard-like beast and force all, both small and great, to receive his mark. Then turn over to Revelation chapter 16, and you begin to see the judgments of God falling upon the earth and the spiritual forces of the enemy using this unholy union of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet to bring together an army to the final battle, the battle of Armageddon. And again, the dragon represents the power of pagan Rome, of paganism, those who have no belief in God, those who worship a plethora of gods or perhaps no gods at all. The beast the state church that has ruled the, the nations of Europe and of much of the world for the last 2,000 years. And finally, the false prophet. Those churches who rose out of the Protestant Reformation but are like those, the church that she came from in spirit and in teaching. They're united in one thing. That thing is the common doctrine of spiritualism. The teaching that Death is not really death. Now think for a minute, if you were, the, if you were a devil and the hallmark of everything you did was, was death and destruction, wouldn't it be an, a pretty clever deception to, to kid people that you really weren't killing them when you killed them? <laughs> wouldn't that be kind of a clever deception? And so Satan uses this deception of spiritualism, this teaching that the dead really are conscious in some other state of existence even though they are dead. This teaching of spiritualism is used to unite all three entities in a last great and final conflict in the battle of Armageddon. And it comes together, starting in, in Revelation 16, then in 17 we kind of go back and see again uh, more of the leopard-like beast, again the, the woman who rides the beast, we went over that previously. And it comes to a head again in Revelation chapter 18. And I want us to spend just a moment or two in Revelation chapter 18. God makes one last appeal. As the plagues are beginning to fall, he makes one last appeal. Babylon, in Revelation 18 verse 2, Babylon, the greatest fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hated bird. Babylon is fallen. But then, in verse 4, 
I heard another voice saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. The call is given. The lament is completed. John looks up. And the rest of this chapter is the lament for Babylon. Then John looks up in Revelation 19 and he sees this glorious scene in heaven. God is preparing to come in judgment to the earth. Up until this time, it has seemed that Satan has made an offensive after offensive after offensive against God's people. And though God is pushing back, God is, God is making a way through this offensive for his people, it seems as though Satan continues to mount one after another after another offensive. The first, it's Satan. First, it's, it's the rebellion in heaven, right? Then it's Satan in this earth. Then it's the paganism. Then it's the, the second beast. Then the third beast. Then the reunion of all three combined with the spiritualism. Okay? Satan is making offensive after offensive. But God gives a final warning in Revelation 18 and makes a lament. Babylon has fallen. Come out of her. One last warning. Come out, come out, come out. And then finally... In Revelation 19, it is as though the hammer drops and everything starts where it ended. Revelation 19, verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sits on the horse and against his army. This battle comes to a head in the battle of Armageddon. This unholy union, the unholy alliance of Satan and all of his minions and all of those he has deceived on one side and God on the other side. And it is as if the battle is over without a fight. In verse 20, the beast was captured, the false prophet that worked signs, which deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and they were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The battle is over without a fight. The rest were killed with a sword that proceeds from his mouth. Notice how it starts. With the, it starts at the end. It starts with the beast. It starts with the false prophet. It starts with... It go, and then it goes back. All those whom Satan has deceived are destroyed. And then the angel lays his hand on Satan, the dragon itself, in chapter 20. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit. And shut him and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. What about this great battle of Armageddon? This battle is as if it's stopped in its tracks. It's put on pause right here. The armies are destroyed and the captain of the army is put into prison. And in its place, the righteous, those who had been oppressed, those who had been persecuted and killed, are raised back to life. Death loses its captives, raised back to life to reign with God in the final phase of the investigative judgment for a thousand years, for a millennium, while the dead, while the wicked are dead. Those who are faithful to God sit and reign, it says. And they, in verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. 
And I saw the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. What what a climactic turn of the tables. But then in verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations again and to gather them together. So the battle of Armageddon is put on pause for a thousand years. Then the armies of the wicked are raised for one final confrontation with Christ. The, the armies of the wicked, again, Satan reunites them. Somehow he's able to deceive them again and again and again. He, de- he reunites them to one final battle of Armageddon, the continuation, really, of the battle that had started at Christ's second coming. But what kind of a battle is it? Is it an evenly matched battle? No, at this point, God and his armies don't suffer a single casualty. It says of the armies of Satan, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So, finally, not only are the beast, the false prophet, and all of these systems that had destroyed and persecuted God's people thrown into the lake of fire, but finally Satan himself, the one who had instigated the entire rebellion, is cast into the lake of fire. But that's not it, my friends. That's not it. The good news is still to come. It speaks of the dead. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the book. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were, that were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then finally, in verse 14, and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. God starts where the rebellion ended. He destroys the beast and the false prophet. Finally, he destroys the entire rebellion. He destroys Satan. And finally, last of all, he destroys death itself. You see, friends, death is this intruder. It came about because of this great rebellion. And when the rebellion is over, it is as if death itself is personified and cast into the lake of fire. And if we, as we read in chapter 21 and verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. As we read in our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, So when this corruptible has put on corruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up 
in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Friends, does it seem sometimes that this little life that we live is so short, so fragile? Oh, it's fun for a little while, but soon it comes to an end. Wouldn't it be wonderful, friends, to have a life like this? One that never ends? You know, in this life, so often it seems that we must eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But friends, the good news of the Bible is this. Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. If we let him, if we tie our little strings onto his string, as it were, one day soon we will go to live with him, not for time, but for eternity. You know those begats, those stories that we started with? Adam begat Seth, who begat Enos, etc., etc., etc. There was one of those stories in Genesis chapter 5 that we missed. I want us to go back there for just a minute. Genesis chapter 5, and starting in verse 18. Genesis chapter 5, and we'll end here. Jared lived 162 years and begat Enoch. And after he begat Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters, etc. And down in verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. After he begat Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. So that sounds like all the stories we've read so far. But in verse 24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You see, unlike all the other stories that we've read, Enoch's story ends differently. He didn't live some 900 years and get old and die. No, it says of his life that he walked with God. He walked so closely with God, as it were, for 300 years that one day, God says to Enoch, this is my imagination now, Enoch, it's closer to my house than it is to yours. Why don't you just come home with me? Friends, this is my prayer for you and for me. I want us to be able to walk with God, as Enoch did, because when we walk with God, we have no reason to fear the grave. He has conquered the grave. He has told us what's going to happen. And whether we fall into the grave for a few short years of sleep before the second coming, or whether we stand there when he comes to welcome him with open arms, it doesn't matter, friends. Because when our lives are linked with his, it can be said of us in the end, that he was not, for God took him. And we will see our Savior soon, friends. We will see him face to face. We will see the loved ones that have been parted from us by death. And we can say again, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory?
O loving Father in heaven, Lord, we long to see your face. Help us, Lord, to walk with you day by day, hour by hour, just as Enoch walked with you. And Lord, we can't wait for that day when you're coming soon to take us home. Help us to be ready to see you face to face. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.